This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Ziggurat at Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area. It is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 663 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I'm the internet's Joe Patrick, your head number one for this evening. And I can't wait to see what a billionaire with a mind of an 11-year-old can do for comics Twitter. And my name is Matt Baum, your head number two. And I noticed Musk hasn't mentioned giving us the power to edit our tweets yet, but he did tweet about dropping the W from the company name. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean? (laughs) Funny guy! (laughs) It's time for another Cosmic Long Box episode where we review and discuss classic back issues from across the time stream based on a theme. And after that, we'll hit you with our picks for next week's comics. Matt, it sounds like the Cosmic Long Box is charged and ready for us to jump, which means it's classic comic review time in the ziggurat! This time, the comic long box is getting real damn literal and forcing us to discuss comics starring characters whose job is right there in their name. So be prepared for characters who didn't just ride motorcycles while fighting evil. They put their reason for being right in their name, too. We're also going to discuss if these characters were any good at the job that they chose for their namesake. Joe, since you're head number one this week, why don't you lead us off? Okay, that sounds good to me. Back in the day when being a really good aim was a job, it's Detective Comics number 474 from DC Comics. I think having a really good aim was a good job, not being a good aim. (laughs) Oh, I mean, being a good aim, being a good shot, you know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, It's from 1977 was the year. It's written by Steve Englehart with art by Steve Rogers. Here is uh, a sum set up for you. After the Penguin unwittingly helps him escape from prison, Floyd Lawton returns to get his revenge on Batman after 37 years. That's right. It's the return of the all-new, all-different Deadshot. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne enjoys a good tumble with his partner Dick Grayson and woos the enchanting Silver St. Cloud, who suspects there's more to the millionaire playboy than meets the eye. This is back when he was just a lowercase m millionaire, not a capital B billionaire. Right. Uh, somehow I completely blanked out the fact that Deadshot first appeared all the way back in Batman number 59 in 1940 as a piece of trivia for you. No, back then he was yeah, back then he was sporting a top hat and domino mask and fighting crime in a tuxedo. Oh, that Deadshot. Gotcha. <laughs> I think uh, aren't they two separate characters? Oh, it wasn't, they are. Was it Floyd Lawton? They according to this comic, they are the same man. Wow. Uh, of course, Gotham's newest hero wasn't what he seemed to be, and the Dark Knight detective had no choice but to send him to prison. Finally, after nearly four decades our time, Deadshot is on the loose once again. Creators Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers very wisely ditched the coat and tails outfit uh, for the red and white costume we know and love. Cowards. It's a big step up for sure. I'm calling them cowards. <laughs> <laughs> it's a much, much needed makeover. This era of Batman is probably more responsible for the tone of the 90s animated series than any other. So many seminal characters and storylines came from this run, including the Laughing Fish, Rupert Thorne, and so many more. 
And while that version of Batman is a little bit grimmer, he's not the dark psychopath that we would later that he would later become in the 90s. Here, he has a good relationship with his partner, Robin. He lives an actual life as Bruce Wayne, though he is conflicted about it. And he has a real love interest. He's capable of interacting with people without using them or treating them as disposable burdens. It's always a shock when I come back to this version after some time away, but I really love it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Though I started reading comics later than this, this is still the version of Batman I think of when I close my eyes. The Batman with the lighter blue and the yellow oval standing, uh, you know, standing alongside the Justice League while the cameras are rolling, not like hiding in the shadows. Yeah, the Super Friends action figure, Batman. Yeah, I mean, he's still like the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams Batman. You know, he's still the Dark Knight detective, but he's not like urban myth. Maybe he's a vampire Batman, you know? Right, also not like a total asshole. (laughs) He's not a total asshole, no. Englehart's script is pure silver and bronze age goodness. It's got villainous villains, heroic heroes, and even a little bit of gray area with a corrupt politician running Gotham City. The art by Marshall Rogers is excellent. He does this thing where Bruce Wayne will be walking and he'll suddenly be partially obscured in shadow whenever he's thinking or talking about Batman. Uh, It's very subtle. Though he's out in public during uh, doing the rich playboy thing, his war against crime is always front and center. Terry Austin is on inks here and he is a great match for Rogers thin, clean lines. And a lot of the shading is done with, brilliantly executed cross hatching rather than big bold fields of black and i love that when it's done well a lot of people don't do it well i'm not quite sure what inspired Englehart and rogers to dust off deadshot uh but boy are, am i glad that they did this issue was great fun detective comics 474 gets a buy it deadshot is indeed a deadshot so yeah he's good at his job so, yeah, pre-crisis Batman freaks me out every time we visit him because he's such yeah. a swell guy. And like the wrestling with Robin was a little much here. <laughs> They're training. You like know, scene, they're not even training. They're just like, we were just sort of talking about this. Of Robin's like, I could take you any day, old man. And like goes, they're oh, noogie, noogie, noogie. Like Batman's like, father and son, take me, can you? And he's like, noogie, noogie, noogie. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> and the whole time Robin is wearing his, you know, his tidy greens. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, wonder girl calls and she is she wonder girl at the time or is she yeah she's wonder girl okay and like she's like you you gotta get to gabriel's horn right away what is that gabriel's horn i believe is where their headquarters was located so it's like the name of it's like a town that's where titan's tower was uh well i don't know if it i'm i'm not sure that it was titan's tower at this point i think titan's tower may have come later i'm not a matt I'm not exactly sure. Okay. I'll look that up. All right. There we go. Or somebody can lay it on us, you know, whatever. Regardless. I mean, it's really not enough lay it on us material. I'll just look it up. The art is excellent. It's it's excellent stuff. And you can see like where Jim Aparo picked up from this and like everybody was doing this like Batman with a huge cape and big pointy ears and stuff. But it's so bright compared to the Batman comics that we read today that are crazy dark, like crazy, like every panel black on black on black with neon lights and stuff. You know, it's just weird seeing this style of Batman. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, this dead shot is very much a dead shot. We know today, and this seems to be sort of in a place somewhere beyond the wacky silver age Batman, but not quite the dark bronze age 
Batman. You know what I mean? Like it's like they're getting serious with stuff, but there's still jokey stuff going on. Well, but this like this came after all of that. So this is like this is that Batman. I I suppose. I just mean the way that they're writing. The the Denny O'Neill, the Neil Adams Batman, that was late 60s. Right. So this was a whole decade later. Right. And it just seems like I don't even then that stuff was still kind of silly here and there. And I guess there's a little bit of that here, but they're taking things more seriously. And I found this a lot easier to read. I really like I mean, look, it's a far cry from that one that one panel I posted online where Batman is walking in broad daylight yes. uh, through a college campus yeah. uh, going on about how uh, the the spring is in bloom and the girls are flowering. Yeah, and he's like, look right. at all it's these lovely like, it's like, flowering ladies. Like, God, uh, Batman, gross. So finish your thought, give your rating, and I will give you my findings on Gabriel's horn. I'm giving this a buy it and Deadshot absolutely good at his job. Probably the best at his job, you know, like yeah, bullseye like, with a gun. He, That's all he, he is. He's the bullseye. He's the bullseye of DC comics. Yes. But he's just uh, with so, guns, right? He's not, is he the kind of guy that can like throw stuff? I mean, too? no, he, he's, he is a marksman. He's, uh, I guess it's more accurate to say that he is more like Hawkeye. Okay. Uh, in that he is a marksman and he's not like anything in his hands as a weapon, you well, know, like bullseye. But we have seen Hawkeye do that stuff too. Like he can throw stuff and like, well, but he was really good at the swordsman. So he's probably good at like throwing knives and shit. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I don't think, I don't think Hawkeye could like ultimate Hawkeye, ultimate Hawkeye would like kill dudes with his own fingernails. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But yeah, no, Deadshot is a marksman. He like put a gun in his hands and there's no stopping him. Okay. Gabriel's Uh, What is it? Gabriel's horn uh, was a disco nightclub. Uh, located in the neighborhood, the Long Island neighborhood of Farmingdale. Uh, it was owned by Mal Duncan. Mal Duncan is a character from the Teen Titans uh, uh, named Harold, uh, like H-E-R-A-L-D, not H-O-R. <laughs> not right. not, Harold, the, not yeah. Harold the man, gotcha. Harold H-E-R-A-L-D, um, like the Galactus Harold. And uh, he had like sonic, like he he had like a sonic horn kind of, power thing going like That's the Pied perfect, piper though, because like at the end of like when they're done fighting crime they can come do a bunch of cocaine uh, and then have an it, orgy you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> um perfect. it uh, it briefly served as the headquarters for uh his colleagues in the teen titans uh it later became a restaurant and a jazz fusion entertainment venue jazz and he fusion. would often entertain his guests <laughs> by playing his horn during meals oh wow <laughs> In later years, not while he was a Teen Titan. Um, But yeah, so it it was Mal Duncan's business that the Teen Titans hung out in. So it was their headquarters. This is a portion of Teen Titans that I don't know that I want to know about, to be perfectly honest. It is, yeah. So the Teen Titans, when they got their start, operated in the former justice league cave right i knew that uh the justice league's first headquarters the 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 cave in, in also um, dumb by the way like happy hollow or where like cave <laughs> that's so weird <laughs> looks like bat cave i mean come on it was a headquarters it had stuff in it i guess it wasn't just like a dank water hole uh and then uh, this was so in between the cave and times tower was gabriel's horn Stay in the 70s, but I want to talk about some guys that had real jobs. This is Defenders, volume one, number 18 from Marvel. The year was 1974. It was written by Len Wein with art by Sal Mishima and Dan Green. I'm guessing Dan Green was your inker? Yeah. Okay. Dan Green is an inker. Gotcha. 
Here's your setup. The Defenders and the Wrecking Crew face off in the rubble of the almost-built Defenders headquarters. How was it destroyed? Well, last issue, Power Man was acting as a night watchman for the project when Doctor Strange and Nighthawk stopped by. Cage, of course, didn't know him, so he beats the hell out of them. But just as the heroes discover there was a misunderstanding, the Wrecking Crew shows up. And, of course, they trash the construction site. Now, you want a group of guys whose job isn't just in their name, but in their gang name, too? I present to you the Wrecking Crew, Thunderball, Bulldozer, Pile Driver, and the man with the enchanted crowbar from Asgard himself, their leader, the Wrecker. The two teams spend most of the issue trying to smash each other, but the Wrecker takes a quick break to recount his team's entire origin. See, yeah. he had this crowbar, and it was infused with the power of the Asgardian Norn Queen. Of course, the Wrecker used it to fight Thor back in the day, but during one of their battles, Mjolnir deactivated his crowbar, and now the only way to turn it back on is to let lightning strike it, with all your buddies touching it, so everybody gets powers. By the way... None of these guys worked in the construction biz before they got these powers. No, they weren't in the, no, they were in prison together. Because now suddenly they got all these powers where they wreck stuff and they identify as construction workers for some reason. But they're not from any construction background. One was a farmhand. One was a physicist. I I think you're overthinking things. They just adopted the wrecking crew, you know, vibe. I mean, I guess, but it's because the wrecker who was a construction worker, had a crowbar, <laughs> basically. Yeah, and he That's said, and, and, Wrecker, and Wrecker says, and now you're my wrecking crew. Right, and they're right. like, all right, well, I guess I'll call myself pile driver. But like, one of them wasn't like, hey, man, I was a physicist, you know? Like, I, I'm not going to be some dumb dude that just wrecks shit. <laughs> well, I mean, he's got to run with the crew. What's he going to do? I guess. Ween writes the wrecking crew written like big dumb palookas, and Bushima draws him like apes once again the defenders prove to be completely outclassed until the hulk shows up and bails them out the wrecking crew were actually sent to retrieve a case that turns out to be empty so other than a big fight and the short origin of the wrecking crew nothing really happens here <laughs> i have a fondness yeah. for the wrecking crew because growing up i always loved a good pro wrestling brawler and these guys reminded me of like the big boss man and sergeant slaughter just big tough dudes that are so badass they can punch the hulk their origin is really dumb but then again so are they except for thunderball and kudos for making the black guy the smart one marvel (laughs) you know this was uh the 70s so bushima's art is great here but the story is just dumb and yet again i find myself asking did anyone really like the defenders (laughs) i think fans of a certain age really got into the defenders I, and you had to like really be there at yeah, the time. Yeah, you had because to be I have tried to read the Defenders uh, as a comic book fan. Like I was like, I want to believe it's not that good. The Defenders is good. It's not. And good. the Defenders is not good. No. <laughs> one thing is for certain. The Wrecking Crew are very good at one job wrecking stuff yeah yeah the best almost you want somebody to knock some shit down the wrecking crew they're your boys i'm giving this a skim it 
It was fun, but it was stupid. And I would say that's how I feel every time I read a Defenders comic. By the way, I was on muscle relaxants and weed while I read this. And I still I was like, eh, <laughs> like, kind of dumb. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, like, I don't really have anything else to add other than um, other than to add that I love Thunderball. Uh, I don't know why it is, uh, why it's Thunderball specifically. Like, a bulldozer and pile driver, whatever, they're fine. The wrecker sure. is a classic. He existed yeah. prior to the wrecking crew, whatever. But Thunderball, for some reason, I, I've always just loved like this genius scientist that got stuck with the complete antithesis of his personality for powers. Pretty much. And and then runs around in a yellow and green uh, jumpsuit and smashes things with a wrecking ball. They all just basically uh, have some variation of I like he's the one dude that like breaks him and the wrecker, I guess, have weapons that they break stuff with. Everybody else just weapons, kind of yeah. punches shit or rams their head into stuff like Ram. Yeah, well, yeah, bull, bulldozer, <laughs> bulldozer smashes things yeah. with his head like Ram Man and basically. pile driver punches things real good. Um, my favorite thing about my favorite thing about the wrecking crew is uh, how they were treated when Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bigley introduced them in Ultimate Spider-Man. They weren't villains. They were contractors that worked for damage control. Yeah. And so, like, they would show up and Thunderball or the the Thunderball stand-in. I don't I don't know what if they actually named them, but they were the wrecking crew. Uh, and they were like, We're here to smash all of this alien technology and get it out of the way so that the bus can come through. Yeah. And and uh it's it's so great. Like they're just like yeah, that's what damage control should be. Right. Like damage control should not necessarily be just like normal dudes in hard hats. It's like, no, that's dangerous. <laughs> and also haven't you like now that I've seen Spider-Man homecoming, I'm stunned that I didn't, that that was not a story in the eighties. I know. Where it's right? like, unscrupulous employee steals very dangerous thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's right there. Right? Come and, on. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is a skim. It, it's it is. Uh, I have nothing else to add other than yeah. my thoughts about the wrecking crew in general. Uh, this book is exactly what you say. It is pretty. It is also pretty stupid. You know, Matt, they say that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> and nothing illustrates that more than Jackson wheel, AKA the big wheel. I mean, uh, his last name was wheel. It was right there. Wheel, he had no yeah. choice, uh, right? The star quote unquote of our next comic, amazing Spider-Man number 183. The year was 1978 Marvel comics. Obviously it's written by Marv Wolfman with art by Ross Andrew. And here is uh, some setup for you. When he's driven too far by Rocket Racer's blackmailing, Jackson Wheel turns to the terrible tinkerer for an instrument of revenge. Thus, the big wheel is born. Meanwhile, Aunt May is in the hospital for, you know, being Aunt May. Aunt She's May. got a bad case of being Aunt May. She's 130. Give her a break. Yeah, all right? <laughs> uh, and in a shocking turn of events that no one could possibly have foreseen, Rocket Racer's mother is sharing a room with her. <laughs> when Peter's spider sense causes him to burst into the women's room in costume, because Rocket Racer's there. Still inappropriate. Yep. He not only puts two civilian security guards in imminent danger by webbing them both to the ceiling but he also throws rocket racer out of a window and causes Aunt May to have another cardiac event. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe he really is a menace. Yeah. Like Spider-Man uh, is being 
bad at his job here. Right. Uh, right. Uh, anyway, the big wheel is also here. Uh, believe it or not, the saga of the big wheel takes more than one issue to complete. In issue 182, Rocket Racer is blackmailing a businessman or scientist. I don't know what he is. He's named Jackson Wheel. Racer is pretty damn ruthless about it, too. Nearly driving Wheel to suicide. It's grim. It's grim stuff. Good Lord. Oh, uh, I know. Of course. Uh, yeah, he shows up. He shows up uh, at like the pier or whatever, or the bridge where Jackson Wheel is about to throw himself off. Yeah. And he's like, not so fast, mister. You still owe me money or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, I read it. And it's like Rocket Racer, Jesus. <laughs> well, I mean, Rocket Racer is a bad guy. What do you want? I mean, like, I, yeah, he would, uh, he would, he would turn his life around. But yeah, okay, this I'm going to take it a step further. Rocket Racer, another guy with a job in his name. Good again, at his being job. Being a Rocket Racer is not a job. Neither is being but, a big wheel, but here we are. Okay. You know, and you and I had an <laughs> argument about this that nearly ended our friendship. But I would say. So thank you for admitting it. Rocket Racer, rockets, races, steal stuff. That is what he does to steal he, stuff. Rocket Ra- I am going to put this out into the universe, and I dare somebody to prove me wrong. Rocket Racer has never once been depicted on panel as racing anybody. No, but he, he is, he's racing around. He's going real fast. All right. Come on. Uh, uh, okay. Fair. Also, better at his job than Big Wheel, <laughs> but we'll get to that. Well, he is better. He is better. <laughs> Way better than Big Wheel. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've, we have digressed. Uh, of course, we come to find out that uh, Rocket Racer is only trying to pay for his mother's hospital bills, but still, like, come on. At the end of the previous issue, Peter also proposes to marry Jane, but it won't be for the last time. Wheel hires the Tinkerer to build him a weapon that he can use to get his revenge on the Rocket Racer. And I really love that scene. Wheel goes to the Tinkerer's secret location. He says, like, a weird passphrase. And the Tinkerer asks him several questions about what he's motivated by, how he's going to pay for it, etc. cetera. Uh, it's a really cool scene detailing uh, the minutia of how a low-rent villain gets his gear. Uh, that's always, like, that's always been such a question that, for some reason in the early 2000s, Marvel decided it's Latveria. They pay for everything. They pay for the right. Shocker shit. They pay for the Beatles shit. It's like, no, that takes the magic out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go to the tinkerer whose motivations are his own. You say, I need revenge and I'm only going to use the thing once. Yeah. And you can have whatever money I make. It's like the and Princess like, Bride. Gotcha. It's where you go and you knock on Magic Max's door and you're like, yeah, like, right. Miracle Max. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Miracle Max. Sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like, never. It's like, you know, you answer the, you answer the Tinkerer's Riddles three and then right. you get your giant big wheel. Unfortunately, the Big Wheel's antics only take up a small portion of this issue as we get a lot of drama between Spider-Man and Aunt May's doctor who thinks Peter is a real piece of shit. And it's hard to say that I blame him. So does Aunt May. That- this is that time in Aunt May's life where she was terrified of Spider-Man. Like terrified when Spider-Man Spider-Man, yeah. would show up, she'd just be like, ah! <laughs> like, and I would but argue there's is, nothing scary about Spider-Man. No, uh, but but this is just this is just Peter though. Right. Peter shows up in his street clothes, and the doctor's like, "Oh well, yeah, look who it is." Yeah. And so yeah, Peter keeps just disappearing from Aunt May's bedside. The doctor's not having it. Uh, did I mention that the big wheel is also here? Yes, he is. Uh, Rocket <laughs> Racer, whose skateboard can fly, by the way, is vexed. 
vexed, I tell you, by the big wheel's ability to drive over cars instead of around them, uh, which is obviously his most dangerous weapon. Yeah, it's a one-wheeled monster truck, essentially. Uh, you know, <laughs> sure, he can deflect rockets and he's got machine guns, but uh, his complete disregard for maneuverability really throws the racer for a loop. Don't forget the grabby hands. It's got grabby oh, hands. Yeah, he's got too. grabby hands, yeah. He's got grabby hands that I can only assume extend because right now they're like t-rex arms i would hope so because yeah they look really dumb (laughs) yeah i would guess they go go gadget out or something i would hope yeah uh we never find out after a thrilling chase during which spider-man nearly gets all of them killed again the big wheel plunges into the river never to be seen again not so fast true believer marvel would dust off the character in 2005 in issue number 12 of spider-man unlimited there we would see the big wheel giving up his life of crime failing at his attempts to become a superhero and finding a new lease on life as a monster truck driver oh it's a happy ending yeah good for big wheel i always try to remember the time during which these books came out when i review them the dialogue is almost painfully hip or it's trying to be hip like it's old man trying to talk like a kid hip i think marv wolfman may have already been cruising towards middle age at the time this book came out yeah between this issue and the last rocket racer refers to somebody as a turkey no fewer than 10 times well rocket racer is black and that's all he black, is black and it the is time. the 70s it was sweet christmas uh, and turkeys that was about yeah, it, so. yeah 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 uh his skateboard is the height of criminal technology uh how can anyone hope to withstand his ability to stand upright on a moving wooden board oh uh, did i mention it can fly and has it's got uh, rockets on it we, yeah it's uh yeah uh it's very silly but it's fun and the art by the great ross andrew is excellent uh oh and if you were hoping that this was the beginning of peter and mary jane's epic love story i'm afraid you've got a lot longer to wait mj gives back his ring at the end of the issue womp womp yeah uh and who can blame her because clearly peter is a terrible human being the throughout worst, this entire right? comic. He's just the worst. This is back in that time where, like, we we would bitch about, like, oh, little Parker Luck, how they're always playing on that, where it's like, you know, bad stuff just happened to people. Yeah, yeah. But this was a time where New York, everyone, like, literally anybody that knew Peter hated, actively hated him. <laughs> yeah, no, just, and, just, and just like, complete. He's just a dude. He's just like vitriol, a dude yeah. trying to take pictures, like, nice guy. Right. He was like, and you, like, Peter. He didn't you <laughs> he didn't he didn't mean to accidentally kill the big wheel no he didn't he did mean to throw a rocket racer out the window but i think yes. he knew that the rocket racer would be okay uh he did web two normal human beings to a 10 foot high ceiling yeah and then just leave them to you know gravity well, an hour and a half later they're gonna fall and hit the floor it'll be all right <laughs> yeah you know what my dad fell out of a tree not much higher than that and destroyed his arm but that's you know yeah well he's no uh, security guard is he <laughs> you're right he's not a he's not a fat hospital security guard there are a lot of classic issues of amazing spider-man from the bronze age uh issue 183 isn't really one of them <laughs> i'm giving this a skim it yeah like look marv wolfman wrote a lot of great spidey stuff we yeah, all he sure did and ross andrew drew a lot of great spidey stuff this yeah. feels very much like a throwaway issue, like filler in between some uh, like, storyline. I, I can't believe they got two issues out of it. Yeah. I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> like, totally. Because these characters, both Rocket Racer and Big Wheel, are two of the dumbest Spider-Man villains ever. 
Again, I would argue rocket racer good at his job. Big wheel. I don't know what his job, bad is. At his job is. His job no. is revenge basically. And he's bad at it. He fails <laughs> to get revenge. Yeah. He fails to get revenge. Uh, he fails to get revenge. And the first day that he gets his, uh, his big wheel, he drives it into the river and yeah. almost dies. Right. Like, so, Oh, you're, I mean, maybe you need yeah. a different name, different shtick. I don't know, but you're bad yeah. at this one. I've given this yeah. a skim it. it. It was fun to read. I'll say that. I, yeah. Yes. It is fun to read. Uh, I was better at driving my big wheel when I was seven years old. Okay. Well, your big wheel had so, three wheels. It didn't have one. That's much more. Difficult. Whatever. Give hey, him man, a, whatever. I was way lower to the ground. It was, a, it was a way more dangerous. Now, had big wheel showed up on a giant souped up three wheel, big wheel, I'd have been that like, would have been so great. This dude rules. <laughs> that would have been so great. Big wheels are a rolling with big fat wheels in back. All right. Enough of these people zipping around. Let's talk about something serious. Prison. I'm talking about Superman. Number 331 from DC. The year was 1979. This was written by Martin Pasco with art by Kurt Swan and Frank Chiramante. Here's your setup. Superman shows up just in time to stop Metallo, the man with a kryptonite heart from stealing tech from the Midtown Star Labs, which kind of looks like a pawn shop from the outside. And Metallo has a robot body and his name is Roger Corbin. And at this point, I realize I don't know shit about Metallo. <laughs> Editor's note, see our YouTube channel for an Uncle Joe story time that tells you all about the origin of Metallo. Not member of Metallo, Matt. Regardless, Soup stops him by welding a mirror over his kryptonite heart just in time to show up for his TV reporter job, which I forgot that he had at some time. Yeah, in the 70s. To criticize the local prisons because Metallo just got arrested three months ago. But Lana has good news. Tomorrow, Carl Draper takes over the Mount Olympus prison for super criminals, and it is, quote, 100% escape proof, which is like saying that this new pool is drown proof until you find a floating kid. Carl just happens to be problematically obsessed with Lana, who is pissed at Lois because she's dating Superman, and Lana is problematically obsessed with soups. There's a lot going on here. Carl takes him on a tour of the new prison that's so secure it doesn't need guards. Just two maintenance guys. Carl is showing off the special prison cells for the Parasite, another guy with his job and his name, the Atomic Skull, and Metallo, but Lana couldn't give a shit. Boring. Then that no-good meddling Superman shows up and puts the prison on an anti-gravity platform covered with a dome that will float the prison 20,000 feet in the air. <laughs> what a jerk, right? That's all it takes for Carl to put on a gray bodysuit with a black shirt with a white prison door on it. Turns out the special cells siphon the power of the bad guys in them and feed them to the master jailer who plans on impressing Lana by putting Superman in prison. Now remember, she's madly in love with Superman, okay? <laughs> Let's talk about the master jailer, my boy Carl. He was from Metropolis. He knew Lana and Clark, but they don't remember him for some reason. He becomes a cutting-edge prison warden, gets a job at a prison on stilts in Metropolis, makes special cells to siphon powers from locked-up villains, and only then does he find out that Lana, his old main squeeze, is on TV in Metropolis and coming to interview him. 
Superman makes the prison even better. So Lana, who's obsessed with soups, remember, switches gears and removes Carl from the interview altogether. This is the point that he freaks out, puts on a costume and goes after soups. I have to ask, was he always planning to be the master jailer, but maybe a good guy until Superman pissed him off? <laughs> it seems like there was a lot of planning that took place before he knew one, Lana was going to be there or two, Superman was going to do any of this. And I don't get it. He makes an LMD of himself, basically a robot version of Carl to trick Superman into coming to the prison so he can tell him his assistant Latimer is actually the master jailer and Latimer is going to get Lana. So Carl at this point can kidnap both Lana and Superman to lock them up. Anyone confused yet? Because <laughs> I was my brain was yeah, blown away. It, this it's a real roller coaster ride. Right, for sure. Every time we read a pre-crisis Superman comic, I am shocked at how needlessly complex the stories become. Kurt yeah. Swan is very good here, but the Master Jailer design is terrible very bad it's, <laughs> it's awful so bad the story is continued in the next issue but i did not bother to read more the master jailer is good at his job he locks up soups here and he was able to contain metallo parasite and the atomic skull but this issue sucked and the master jailer is dumb is he good at his job sure but his planning and execution is so, I was going to say bad, but I guess it's strange. <laughs> These criminals will definitely be remanded to someone else's custody when all is said and done. I am giving this a leave it. I am still not completely sure what happened here and how he became the master jailer. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. It, it, it's <laughs> no. a bad comic. and. Um, and this is like, I am a person that loves Superman, like loves Superman. Um, but I find a lot of pre-crisis Superman stories that aren't like from the Silver Age, uh, a kind of uh, weird and silly. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. Like he was a bad guy before he knew he was a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, he was obsessed with Lana Lang. It's a whole goddamn it. thing. But he didn't um, even know Lana was like in metropolis when he got this job he was shocked you know yeah he was just like ah, oh, i thought i could get away from you baby but right. no you've, yeah. you're here dogging my every move yeah uh yeah no it's uh it's dumb uh this is a leave it uh, kurt swan is uh, remains you know one of the greatest superman artists of all time uh but this design is very bad and Ooh. i can only hope he's not responsible for it hello dad a real robot theme going on here uh because my next review also features a killer robot it's dc comics presents number 61 from 1983 in case you were wondering it is from dc comics dc comics presents. gotcha yeah. it's written by len ween who made an appearance elsewhere in this episode uh with art by george perez here is your setup the world yet to come is at stake as a powerful robot from the future arrives to kill the ancestor of its creator's greatest enemy. The only ones standing in its way are the Man of Steel and the mysterious One Man Army Corps, a.k.a. OMAC. 
Yeah, that's right. OMAC is an acronym. I don't know if everybody knew that. That's right. It's the only reason it counts because he is a one man army corps. <laughs> what do you mean? It's the only reason that counts. His job is. Oh, his because it's his name. Yeah, yeah. it's his name is yeah. OMAC. Yeah. Uh, full disclosure. This is one of my favorite comic books of all time. Like really? legit. Really? Yeah, it really yeah. <laughs> okay. 100%. You're not going to uh, like so, what I have to say about it. <laughs> uh, well, you're a bad person. Uh, so I like, look, I might seem a little biased. This issue presents the first team up between Superman and the one man army corps, also known as OMAC. The version you're most likely familiar with wouldn't appear for another like 30 years or so. So this one is much more in line with the original Jack Kirby version from the 70s. OMAC is an agent of the Global Peace Agency tasked with ending threats wherever they arise in the world yet to come, which is what they always called it, which I thought was great. And it was never like a thousand years from now or at the end of time. It was like, no, the world yet to come. <laughs> the villainous Intercorp has concocted a plan to send a murderous robot back in time to kill OMAC's ancestor. A plan that is so full of holes that it's best not to think about it too closely. Yeah. Uh, see, they'll just pick. They'll just pick a different OMAC, guys. They'll just pick a different dude to be OMAC. Also, just like see every Terminator movie after Terminator One for why that's a problem. You know. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like, the 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 mission is not to prevent the organization of the Global Peace Agency. No. No. Not at all. The plan is to stop the one guy they think is going to be OMAC right. when they will just pick another guy at random to pick OMAC. It's like, there was because that's literally his origin, right? There's like, there was one dude in the meeting that was like, no, no, we're killing OMAC. I don't care about the agency. Fuck that guy. <laughs> but, but Bob, but Bob, they will just no, pick a different it's OMAC. My company. And what does it say on this desk? What does it say? It says Mr. Intercorp. All right. It doesn't say <laughs> Mr. Peon or whatever your name is. <laughs> You're right, sir. You're right, sir. And when you're right, you're right. We'll get to work. After a brief encounter with Murder Mech, that's the robot's name, Murder Mech, M-E-K. Kick-ass band name, by the way. If you're going to start a yeah. tech metal band, Murder Mech. <laughs> like one word. Yeah. So it's M-U-R-D-E-R-M-E-K, Murder Mech. It goes poorly. Superman has the customary pre-team-up misunderstanding with OMAC. After which we get a brief rundown of his origin. OMAC, as I said, he's a man named Buddy Blank. A common laborer for the Global Peace Agency. He's a Buddy common Blank. laborer, which makes it sound like he's in cartoons, like putting the cement on the bricks and stacking the bricks. You know, yeah, I mean, kind of. <laughs> yeah, he's got he's a just bucket. A guy. He's just a guy. He's full of cement. He punched a he's clock. Got a spade. <laughs> he, he punched a clock. Did a thing. A buddy was secretly chosen to be a guinea pig for their greatest invention a powerful satellite named Brother Eye, capable of empowering Buddy with the strength of an army and a very stylish haircut. The rest is, you know, it's history or future history, but I don't know. Murder Mech recruits a group of very human bank robbers for some reason, outfitting them with ridiculous flying inner tubes. Uh, actually, they they all look kind of like low rent Modocs. Yeah, and I'm not sure which is more ridiculous: the fact that Murder Mech wants a posse, or that a bunch of humans that are bank robbers are just like, I don't know, I kind of trust this robot from the future that wants like, to yeah, give let's us follow this robot. <laughs> uh, there's also there's also a so like Murder Mech enters the scene. The robbers are in a bank taking fire from the police. Right. They're like, you'll never take me alive, copper. Sure. And Superman's on his way. It's like, oh, shit's going down. Murder mech just happens to teleport into, like when he arrives in, in 1983, he just happens to materialize in the bank. 
uh, or, or outside the bank. And he immediately takes down not only all the cops, but Superman as well. And the crooks are like, we're hitching our wagon to this star. Let's go. At which point murder mech clearly depicted on panel flies away. Yeah. Murder and some out of there. And, yeah, murder <laughs> mech is just like murder mech out and he's gone. Handling Modoc uh, boys. <laughs> yeah. And, and so like, I'm not sure how they caught up to him, but they did. And he gave them like sweet rides as a, as a reward. Right. The fight scenes are pretty thrilling. Uh, actually, I mean, I'm, I'm making fun, but like, it's really well choreographed. Len Wein does a great job selling that murder mech is a real threat, which is no mean feat, considering we're dealing with the pre-crisis Superman, a character who could push planets. Yeah, I didn't really get why murder mech can take Superman. I mean, uh, well, I think it was more that murder mech caught Superman off guard, well, you know? Well, but that's so always Superman. Pain murder mech kicks the shit out of superman on several panels and it's just like because future is that it well but he doesn't hurt superman though he's just like yeah i mean he doesn't hurt him but he does knock him he around keeps, he's <laughs> able to keep superman at a distance and there is just something about a buff dude in a mohawk in comics that is so stinking cool omac is as confident in his own abilities as marvel's gladiator is in his even though he is way outclassed by both superman and murder mech not to mention he's cut off from the source of his power. Yeah. Brother, I won't be invented for another like 500 years or something. But Omac is just like, you've dealt with the rest. Now deal with the best, baby. Uh, I got a quote for you. I am the sum total of humanity's greatest hopes and aspirations. The yeah, living yeah. embodiment of its dreams for a better tomorrow. Omac lives so that man may live. Now, immediately after yelling this, he gets his ass handed to him. Omax is not real good at his job, <laughs> quite honestly. I mean, he's not. He, like, he is real good at his job. He, he talks, is just. Okay. Like, maybe in the future when he's got a satellite filling him full of super stuff. Here he talks a lot of shit and kind of gets thrown around. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, so does Superman, to be fair. Well, yeah, but Superman's not talking shit. Superman's just like, all right, enough of that. I mean, well, Superman like, doesn't talk shit. Modoc talks shit. He's confident. No, Omac and talks shit. That's what I mean. Oh, like Omac talks shit. He's confident. And also, Omac doesn't have any problem dispatching the inner tube Modocs. No, no. But when it comes to the robot, Omac is useless. Absolutely. Well, because, look, Matt, it's a murder mech. It's murder mech. Matt. I understand that, but Omac was sent back in the future to stop crap from the, like this happening, right? And Omac's going to be the first to tell you that nobody's better at this than Omac. He threw himself into the time portal all to right, cheat right. murder mech when Brother I told him not to. He's, yeah, because his ego was such. He's so dumb <laughs> yeah. and, and ego driven. And he's like, shut up, Brother I. The only right. thing that makes me super and gives me all my powers and makes me yeah. a total badass. I don't need you. I'll go back in time and fail to show you how good I am at this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, like, he's lucky he didn't A, die, and B, get stuck in 1983. Yeah, he was a real because, problem, <laughs> to be yeah, honest. Yeah, like, if, if if Brother I wasn't able to rebuild that time machine, he'd have been screwed. Yeah. Anyway. Omac talks tough. He is tough. He's just not as tough as Superman, and there ain't no shame in that game. I'd argue he's a moron. Well, I mean, he he didn't get chosen for his brains, Matt. <laughs> Apparently not. With Murder Mech's target in its sights, Omac's future looks doomed. But this is Superman's book, and he's not letting any stinking robot kill civilians on his watch. The issue ends with a really fun twist that'll have you looking back through the issue for clues that you missed, and you definitely did. 
the whole thing is beautifully drawn by the master George Perez. He draws one of my favorite supermen of all time. His OMAC looks tough as hell and nobody draws a superhero fight scene quite like he does. Oh, for sure. Uh, now it, this, this, I will grant you, this definitely seems dated and it certainly doesn't fit with any of the current takes on the characters. Uh, you know, this is like, this is still in the era of like TV reporter, Superman and OMAC is just a man with a haircut instead of like, an endless supply of human cannon fodder right. taken over by a, a machine created by Batman because that's Batman's in Batman's skill set for some reason. DC Comics presents 61 definitely holds up for me. And in my book, OMAC definitely excels at being a one man army corps. Now, the thing about armies is that they don't always win every battle. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. Good armies do. <laughs> at the no, yeah. Sometimes armies lose battles. That's how it works. Yeah, that's how war it works. You're right. And you know what we call those those the people in that army that lost the battle? We call them losers. <laughs> okay. okay, but Matt, a war is not just one battle. I like, don't you disagree. Don't think America only fought one battle in World War II or the Revolution. I don't disagree. I'll get to what how my feelings in OMAC in just a second. Now, like okay. <laughs> because at the beginning of the book, when OMAC shows up to fight Intercorp, he is like just totally f-ing their shit up. He's like smashing this, smashing that, and he shows up and they are like, oh shit, it's OMAC. Uh, like they are scared of OMAC and he because he is good at his job. Right. And then he makes he does the dumbest possible thing he could do. He makes a mistake and he disconnects himself from the only thing. That makes him OMAC. <laughs> so, but I mean, he still has the power. He just can't get more power. Right. Uh, it's a buy it. Okay. Um, look, I will give this a buy it um, because George Perez drew the hell out of it. It's a young George Perez. It's not the George Perez you're thinking of, but you can see the greatness that is George Perez here. There's a great panel where Superman does beat murder mech. I would think he should have beaten him a little earlier, but I get it. We're using this for. Uh, conflict and plot and whatnot. OMAC is bad at his job. OMAC is. No, he's not. He's bad at his job, Joe, because he's an idiot. He is a complete moron. One of the most important things for any army is logistics. And you know what OMAC fundamentally does not understand? <laughs> it is logistics. It's like if you're like, all right, well, all right, army, we've all got six bullets in our gun. Let's go to war. Like, Sarge, are we going to like get more bullets? That's not important. What's important is the war. Now go, go, go. You know, like you're going to lose that war <laughs> really badly. It, OMAC is a moron here. And I haven't read a whole lot of OMAC. I've read some of the Jack Kirby stuff where he is empowered and he's completely insane and he's a lot of fun and i'm sure they figure that out later i'm just saying he's too stupid now look okay now if you want to argue that in this particular appearance omac does a dumb thing and is not very effective he is too stupid to have i'll grant you that but on balance omac is a very effective one-man army corps okay just not here (laughs) we both agree with that well whatever I, i mean look he goes back in time. He helps Superman foil a time travel murder plot. Mm, I would say Superman pretty much does it on his own. Superman, in fact, I'll take it a step further. Superman wins despite OMAC. OMAC, OMAC causes some OMAC problems for down, Superman. <laughs> OMAC took down all those bank robbing Frisbees. You really Don't think Superman couldn't do that? Superman would have taken care of that, right? After Not he while he was murder fighting murder Mac. Oh, please. <laughs>
We all know the Army's for suckers, and the real money, it's in comets. That's the one I want to talk about. <laughs> the Comet Man, number one from Marvel, 1987. This is a comic book that I picked up from a Toys R Us years and years and years and years ago. I did not understand where it took place, what it was, and you'll see why in just a moment. It's from Marvel Comics, 1987. It's written by Bill Mummy and Miguel Ferrer. Yes, that Miguel Ferrer. And that Bill Mummy. Well, we'll get to Bill Mummy in a second. With art by Kelly Jones. Yes, that Kelly Jones. (laughs) And Jerry Talak. Here's your setup. Yes, that Jerry (laughs) Talak. Sorry, Jerry. (laughs) The action starts in outer space as we cut to the Space Bell Firewatch Probe, which is a total 2001 ripoff. Dr. Stephen Beckley, working with MIT and NASA to study Halley's Comet, is flying through space in a ship that looks remarkably like the probes from 2001 A Space Odyssey. His wife, well, she's an astronaut too. And nice girl, you'd like her. She's got their kid in their both in mission control and she is getting manhandled by her jerk boss david see david used to date and it was a whole thing right meanwhile steve is in space getting a look at the comet when it turns and comes right at him destroying his probe and killing him in front of his family David, of course, has a complete hard-on for this and is there to console Anne because he's a slime ball in chapter two we very suddenly realize Steve isn't dead, but was taken aboard an alien ship that was off panel. Or the ship was the comet. It's not entirely clear. It turns out the alien ship was monitoring this sector of space with its probe, Haley's Comet. See? Oh. Also, Steve died. He definitely died. And the alien, there's only one on this ship, his name is Max. He reconstituted Steve in a machine after the comet vaporized his body. Max tells Steve, you should come with me, learn about yourself after the machine did its thing, and he gives Steve a snazzy comet costume, just like Max is wearing. Steve says, no way, and heads back to Earth. Max kicks Steve out into deep space, but instead of Steve dying, he realizes he can fly and teleport. (laughs) When he gets back to Earth, jerk boss David is shocked, but doesn't want to tell Anne, her husband, that Steve is alive. So, like, Steve, come with me. We got to check out your new powers. It's a whole thing. Turns out he's super strong. He scored 96% on his ESP test. 96%. He's not an A. Like, he's a a strong A, but he's not Not quite an A+. plus. not an A+, no. (laughs) But he cannot seem to read David's mind. Oh, what if that'll be a problem? Yeah, but, like, David totally wants to have sex with his wife. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a very early Kelly Jones, and his art is Excellent. We're not into the horror style that he would adopt later, but you can see Jones style here for sure. He'd been around since 1983 at this point. I thought maybe this was his first Marvel stuff. Micronauts number 52 is first. Yeah, I've read Marvel I've read issue. some of his Micronauts. It's good. Nothing about this comic feels like it takes place in the Marvel universe. There is no references to anything so i had to wonder was this maybe an adaptation for a movie script that didn't get made why do i wonder that because this was written by some star power no pun intended later comet man did meet up with she not really a it's not really a pun like a comet is not a star but no yeah 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 later 
Comet Man would meet up with Shield and the FF. So he does become part of the Marvel U. For those of you, who- he does get an entry in the '89 update to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Yes. For those of you who don't know, Miguel Ferrer, star of Hot Shots, part duh, very famous movie star. Yeah, he's that guy 80s. on RoboCop. Bill and Bill Mummy, also child star. Will Robinson from Lost in Space. I have to wonder if this was some pitch from these guys for a superhero that may have been a movie script and they wanted to give Marvel a comic first and then it just didn't get made because this literally has nothing to do with the Marvel universe at this point in issue one. Yeah. Comet man is new to his job here. I'm going to give him a pass why he can teleport. I don't totally understand, but this is not a bad comic. There's some adult themes. I dig his costume design. Comet Man never really caught on, though he would later be considered for the Avengers Initiative program. They, oh, that's right. They turn him down. <laughs> he was going to be like Comet Man of wherever, whatever city you're living in now. And there's literally a panel where you're like, yeah, he's kind of a weirdo. <laughs> I don't really want him around. <laughs> I am giving this a buy it it was weird it was fun the art is great uh yeah i agree uh i've never read this um i had read his handbook entry Mm -hmm. and at the time as you know an 11 year old kid in 1989 i read that handbook entry and went what (laughs) is is he max wait max is a different character but he looks the same like it, it was so unclear what the dynamics were, you know, like what's the deal between all of these characters. And then I read this, uh, you know, for this, uh, episode, I was like, Oh, okay. I get it. Um, so it's like the comet outfit is like a uniform kind of, it's yeah. like a uniform or a spacesuit. It's There's not a really whole a squad of like comet dudes out there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, this comic is fun. Miguel Ferrer's involvement baffles me. Wild. I, I don't understand. I dug, I went out there and I did some research and I dug, I'm like, this had to be like some kind of script treatment that they were going for in Hollywood or something. Maybe I, and they all like, they sort of alluded to it in a couple interviews, but didn't really say anything. Yeah. Like maybe they were trying to like build interest for something, but Bill mummies, he's all over comics. Like he grew up to be a writer and, uh, uh, he was like a TV writer. He was involved a lot in, uh, in like, um, uh, Babylon five. He's yeah. guest starred uh, in a lot of, uh, uh, cheesy episodes. Like he was a character on Babylon five. He's been in star Trek. Um, but he's also written a lot of stuff with Peter David, um, like on the TV side of things. And so like Bill mummy, like that makes sense. He is cheesy sci-fi guy. He grew right. up to be, uh, he went from being cheesy sci-fi kid star to being cheesy sci-fi writer. Like what if Will um, Wheaton was talented, you know? uh but uh yeah don't come at me Kel- no offense I, Will I, no, I, like i'm just i'm just gonna leave that it was where a I, joke. It was a joke. I wanna <laughs> i get it the art is is very very good it is it's a very different kelly jones it's it's not at all what you would uh come to love him for in the 90s i liked this a lot it's a buy it for me it's weird as hell yeah it's very strange it's this weird like it, like this is a 1980s primetime sci-fi totally. dra- comedy drama, totally. right? This is right up there with like Manimal or like any of those yes, like 80s superheroes. Like, it, like yeah. it could have been, yeah, where it's just like guy that does this thing, you know, and what's yeah, that right. thing? He's and a comet. Like, what's his name? And, comet but it's like, Man. He's also got, he's also got 
relationship drama with his wife. Right. And his best friend won't tell his wife that he's still alive. And yeah. wah, wah. You know, it's like all this wacky stuff. And it's like, you're right. It reads like it should be on television. Totally. Um, but it's a comic and it's a good one. It's a buy it for me. War. It's fantastic. Matt, we are leaving the realm of superheroes and our last two books are both vertigo books how did this happen we picked these without talking to each other about it it's almost like we share a body it's almost like we share a body next up for me is sandman presents the dead boy detectives number one from vertigo as i said it came out in 2001 it's written by ed brubaker with art by brian talbot and here is your solicit timely choice by the way nice job thank you so they have a show coming oh yeah just announced actually yeah (laughs) that's what i'm talking about yeah sorry i forgot (laughs) Here's your solicit, and it is an actual solicit, courtesy of the infinite memory of the Diamond Comics Retailer Service. Edwin and Charles, the British schoolboys who cheated death of the endless in The Sandman Seasons of Mist. That's like volume three for those of you that uh, read and trade. That sounds three or four. They set up shop as detectives for hire from their treehouse in back of a haunted mansion. But their first case may be more than they can handle. That's all you get. (laughs) And that's fine. You know, this is back in the day where we didn't need solicits to explain everything. It's all there, though. I mean, it's all right there. There you go. It's pretty much all right there. This is not the first appearance of the Dead Boy Detectives or even the second or third appearance. But this is the first time that they start in their own series outside the pages of Sandman. Their first appearance uh, in the actual Sandman series is wonderful, and it shows the genesis of their afterlife-long friendship. But it would take a while before they got out there and started solving crimes. The boys have taken up residence, as the solicit said, in a treehouse office, and they've hanged up their shingle advertising their services. The rules of life and death work a bit differently here, and the detectives can move through the world pretty much as normal, though they are likely to be ignored or unseen. They can do things like take a correspondence detective course from a sham mail order college and infiltrate a morgue to search for clues. But they can also interact with the living when they want to. And honestly, being a ghost in the Sandman universe doesn't seem so bad. Well, they're kind of stuck in a place in between. uh, Yeah. Except for the whole never growing old thing. And the fact that death could come back and claim them at any time, but you know, whatever a young woman named Marsha comes to Charles and Edward for help after several of her friends have been found dead and aged to withered husks. Not exactly natural causes. She immediately realizes the error of her decision to hire two children that operate out of a treehouse office and bales. Uh, I would think that she could have gotten to the foot of the tree and figured that out without making the climb. But, well, I mean, you want to climb up there first and see you what know, you're dealing with. Come on. They're British, you, <laughs> you know, it's know. so courteous, you know, <laughs> but the two boys will not be dissuaded and proceed to investigate on their own. We are given a brief recap of their origin as two orphans trapped at a terrible boarding school, 75 years apart. When Charles met Edwin's ghost, the two became fast friends. And when it was Charles's turn to die, he refused to let death, that's capital D, death, take him. And so the boys have spent the last decade living the high life, seeing movies when they want to and honing their detective skills. Uh, But as I said earlier, they never know when death's going to come back and just end it all. A fresh-faced young Ed Brubaker writes this issue back when he was still mostly known for his independent work and he was only dipping his toe into superhero stuff at DC. I think he was just getting uh, started writing Batman 
Uh, honestly, it's a pretty conventional early 2000s Vertigo story, which isn't a bad thing, but there also really isn't anything that sets it apart. This is a time where you could slap the Sandman logo on something and people would still be super eager to pick it up. And rightfully so. The world that Neil Gaiman and his collaborators created is rich with story potential, which is literally like the only, that's the entire point of Sandman. Charles and Edwin go about their business, crossing paths with a Sandman supporting character named Mad Hetty, who is a crazy hobo witch, and she is awesome. The story is interesting. The dialogue is good, but that's really about it. The art by Brian Talbot is equally interesting and good. If I were to criticize something about the book, it's the fact that it's just there. I read it. I thought to myself, that was a well-told story, and then promptly forgot about it until it was time to write this review. It doesn't stick with you in the way that even some of the bad comics that we reviewed this week do. It's by the numbers. And I, like, I, I hate to, to criticize it in that way, but that's just how I felt when I was done. Sandman presents the Dead Boy Detectives number one, long title. It isn't bad by any stretch of the imagination, but there also isn't really anything to rave about it either. I'm giving it a strong skim it. Okay, I, I don't disagree with you at all but i think calling this story by the numbers like you said is a fair criticism because this is coming out of the sandman which is one of the most celebrated important comic book stories of all time they went as far as to put a kick-ass dave mckean cover on this and everything so it's mm -hmm. packaged sandman 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 it's all here you like sandman gonna be into this i do not like brian talbot's art here i think it's weird he has some serious face issues one of the things I'm going to talk about it next in, in my review, which is also Sandman specific, but one of the things they did in mostly Sandman books was not put artists like Brian Talbot on them. There were artists that did implied things. The art was a little looser. The art was a little more abstract here and there. And I get that they're trying to tell like a detective story, but it feels like Brian yeah, Talbot. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's way too real. It yeah, feels it, too real. It feels like Talbot is the wrong guy for this book. And, and I don't know that it's even his fault, quite honestly. Like, he should not be drawing this. It should be spookier, it should be weirder, and it's not. It just isn't. This is a ghost story. At its core, it's a ghost story, and it doesn't, it never feels like a ghost story. The dead boy detectives just look like two kids. They, they rarely look like ghosts until they do something ghostly. This is young Brubaker trying to find his footing, and I see him working. Is it bad? No. Is it good? No, it's fine. It's fine at best. And I remember this back in the day. And I remember reading this issue and going, done. Don't care. Thought they were really cool in the pages. The idea of them that Neil Gaiman came up with in the Sandman was very cool. It was not well executed here. I'm giving it a skim it as well. I mean, and Brian Talbot did work on some Sandman stuff. He did. But he wasn't, he's not. Like nobody thinks of Brian Talbot when they think of Sandman. Right. You're absolutely right. And like this book, yeah, you're for being a Sandman book, it's way too like set in realism. Yeah, it doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work. Are now are the Dead Boy Detectives good at their job? Yes. They're, they're very detectives. good. Yeah, they're at good their detectives. Job. Yeah, they are very good at it. So I'll give yeah. them that. On the subject of Sandman, let's talk about Sandman number eight. This is from DC Vertigo. It's 1989. 
This was written by Neil Gaiman with art by Mike Dringenberg. Here's your setup. Dream, the living personification of dreams and stories, had only recently escaped from the imprisonment at the hands of a clever human. It turns out that Dream wasn't even the intended target. They were trying to catch his little sister, Death. You guessed it, the living personification of Death. In this story, Dream visits his sister at work, moving across different locations of Earth, collecting the souls of those who have just passed, while she reminds her brother it's okay to reach out to family every once in a while for help, especially if you're being held captive by British occultists. I but he couldn't, there's the whole deal. He was trapped in the jar. Yes, but he's trying to deal with this afterwards, and he hasn't said anything to anyone. Right, so. yeah, yeah. He's still brooding about it. This was the first appearance of death in Gaiman's Sandman. Man, and it's a key issue that sells for amazing prices in nice condition. Good luck to you if you need this one. The two jump to different locales while catching up and visiting different people just before they pass on to what Dream refers to as the sunless lands. He's a little blasé about the whole dying thing, especially in a scene when standing in a room with a mother that's just lost a newborn, but I suppose he's basically a god of dreams, so our he's, existence must seem fairly boring. He is, like, so they're, dr the Endless have been around since the birth of the right. universe. Right. Death appeared when the first living thing appeared in the universe. Dream came soon after. Right. Or one, the order, I might have the order wrong, but the, he's seen it all. Like, the I death of humans is not a thing for him. came first because the thing was living and it dreamt, and then death and came then it died. second. Yeah. Because her job was to wait around until it dies. More or right. Less. So one of my favorite elements of Game and Sandman was the human aspects he brought to the endless dream and death, etc. They all worked directly with humanity in different jobs, but had trouble relating to the different aspects of human emotion and therefore had the same difficulties dealing with each other, even though they're related. There's a theme of family with the members of the endless that Gaiman writes effortlessly here. He's using a gothy brother with pale skin and crazy black hair, talking to his gothy sister with pale skin and crazy black hair. They just both happen to be gods trying to understand each other and why they do what they do for a living. Dringenberg's art is the epitome of vertigo in the late eighties. It is the exact opposite of what I was just talking about yeah. with Brian Talbot. He uses scratchy lines with almost implied figures in the background, a ton of black ink. This is not detailed, clean superhero art, but it works so perfectly to tell Gaiman's story. The rule at the time was Vertigo covers are always going to look better than the interior art. And Dave McKean's covers were some of my favorites. But there's a reason why Drinchenberg got this job and he executes it perfectly. I am giving this a buy it. Both Dream and Death are incredible at their jobs, by the way. This is I mean, what they were created yeah. to do. And their only problem was they started questioning why they do it. They can't. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not even fair to say that they're good at their jobs. They are their jobs. Right. Like there's no escaping them. Yeah. They like um, literally are the personification of their right. job. And, and, and the fact that some members of the endless, that's a, that's a key plot point in Sandman over time is that um, when the endless try to deny their nature, it's not great. 
uh so like well it messes with the universe i mean like yeah, that's yeah, the problem yeah, you know so like it's one, not like, like your garbage man didn't come pick up the garbage today and you got a bunch of garbage it's like the garbage man didn't come and no one was born in the month of february you know like well that's yeah, i mean yeah it's uh so it's um yeah, it's it's interesting, you know. Uh, I loved this very much, and you know, I've 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 read Sandman uh, years ago, and um, uh, it was so great to revisit. Like, this is a great issue. It's the sort of issue that sticks with you. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's just so strange to me that Mike Dringenberg is not considered the guy that um created co-created sandman because he wasn't there at the beginning that's like saying captain america wasn't there when the avengers formed what, he didn't like, show up until four months later everybody just thinks of death the high cost of living and they go oh yeah chris bacala chris bacala yeah, he created no. death right like no yeah no it's like, but like <laughs> no. to me to me like mike dringenberg epitomizes the visual style of the entire run of sandman, of sandman whether he's drawing it or not of sandman yes when i close my eyes and picture death it's Chris Bacalo. I yeah. see Chris Bacalo's death. Yeah. No, that's true. Uh, I mean, she really, so death cute. is just Tori Amos. Ooh, she was so cute. Yeah, no. death is just Tori Amos, and that's no, like Tori Amos is no a redhead. Get out of here. No, she. No, wasn't. I get it, but it, trust me, <laughs> she was like, Kate death, Bush. Death. She was absolutely Kate Bush, no question. If you want to know more about these comics, check out our show notes, where you can find links for all the books we discussed. Now, Joe. Before we take off our comic book review man hero costumes, we need to pick one of these comics to enter the THM permanent collection and which character we would hire to do their job. Oh, oh. yeah. Okay. Think well, about that. I mean, I'm not just talking about who's the best job. Who would you hire to do their job? Wow. Okay. Well, my permanent collection book is Sandman 8 I, uh, because it's just it's magnificent it's on like every level. one of the most important comic books ever written <laughs> like we can throw um, it out there i think safely and i think if i were to hire it's the dead boy detectives i think it's not death i'm not like i don't want death in you i'm not in the market for a death right now okay well look maybe you have a mystery you need investigated whatever i got a shed in my backyard that i need torn down Oh, that would okay. Yeah, fair. I would love crew. to have the wrecking crew come over, give them a six pack of beer, and just watch them go to work. <laughs> you know, well, but see, the, and then I want to hear some stories. You know, like I want to talk about. I want to hear about fighting Thor and shit. You know, like it sounds great. I bet those guys are like, fun to party if, with. If this is, if this is like, if I'm taking them for as they are. Like I'm not sure I want the wrecking crew hanging around. Nah, they're they're just good old boys. Come on, they're just they're out there trying to make a paycheck. You know, yeah, they're good bad boys is yeah. what they are. Once again, we find ourselves in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where we've reconstituted in our proper timeline. Matt, today seems boring as hell. So what do you say we project our astral selves into the future for a glimpse of the secrets of next week's comics? What should these nerds be reading next Wednesday, May 4th? And why are we so restless? We just got back from the past. Why do we got to jump to the future? I think it's ADD. I don't know. I mean, honestly, it's probably a chemical problem. I think it's chemicals. Yeah. yeah. I'm going with Archer and Armstrong Forever. Number one from Valiant. It is $3.99. It's written by our new friend, Steve Foxy, who follows us on Twitter now. Can you believe this yeah. guy? All we got to do is give him one good review and he loves it. With art by Marcio Fiorito. Here's your solicit. The triumphant return of Valiant's best 
besties. When Armstrong seemingly loses his immortality, Archer refuses to let his best buddy go gently into that good night. But when you live for millennia, you rack up plenty of enemies. Who will be thrilled to find out you're no longer indestructible? Archer and Armstrong globetrotting quest for more immortality begins here. So it's fun. Armstrong might not be immortal anymore. Got to figure out how to do that again. The art for this looks amazing. And Steve Fox, that dude is coming up. I'm telling you, you heard it here yeah. first. Follow this guy, buy his comics. He's crazy talented. Joe Patrick, what is your pick for next week? My pick for next week, and knock me over with a feather, but it is Quests Aside, so, number one from Vault Comics. I, I just, you know what? I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. You don't buy what? Joe Patrick hates but, fantasy. I don't get it. I, I know. <laughs> okay. But, uh, but I love tavern, you know, stories. So here we go. It's written by Brian Shermer with art by Elena Gogau, which I'm trying real hard not to just see as Grogu. I know. I'm a I was going to say, Steve Fox will always be Steve Foxy and Elena Gogau will always be Elena Grogu. <laughs> the Sorry, show. Elena. Sorry. <laughs> Here's your solicit. A skeleton, an apprentice mage, and an exiled princess walk into a bar, dot, dot, dot. For another shift at quests aside, the local watering hole run by once legendary, now retired adventurer Barrow. When the king privately explains that he plans to shut the place down, Barrow must find a way to hold on to his business and the family he's built around it. And this is where they sold me. It's always sunny in the realms. If this is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Set in a D&D tavern run by adventurers. Yes, I'm in. Look, this, this trumps the Joe hates fantasy rule. I want it to be good. I do. But I will say you and I have both complained about the dearth of these sort of like modern fantasy takes that are out there right now. That's all I'm saying. Have the, we? Yeah. Or have you? No, we both have. And you've been like, well, I'm not into fantasy. So, you know. <laughs> well, see, that's just, that, that's the joke, right? But like, I've, I've read and enjoyed many fantasy comics over the years. I don't actually hate fantasy. I know. Fantasy. You always end up liking them, so. It's just not my preferred genre. Right. I don't gravitate toward it like Wooly Toots does. You're but, like my wife when it comes to mushrooms and scallops. She's like, oh, I don't like mushrooms or scallops. Then we eat it. And she's like, those are the best mushrooms and scallops I've Sure, ever right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, yeah, you know what? Joe hates fantasy, but boy, does he love playing Dungeons and Dragons and World of Warcraft. It's like, yeah, okay. I also like a deconstruction of a thing where, you know, this isn't just the tale of four adventurers right. that walk into a tavern. It's the story of four former adventurers that run a tavern. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think looks, that's fun. I think it looks perfectly charming. And it has like this sort of like old school, like they're going to tear down the orphanage. We got to raise some money. To, <laughs> you know, like well, and there's like little fun. Like, ag- like literal, like actual, like David, the gnome looking gnomes right. r- running around in the foreground. It's like, yeah, cute. Come on. It looks clever. And, and like, I want it to be, but in my heart of hearts, and I'm sorry for being this person, I want it to just be filthy. Like it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I don't think they I say that. that. It is. I, I don't think they say that in the solicit, and it's not. The THN oh, trade of the week is just in time for all these jerks that went, oh, they're turning Thor into a girl. It's Jane Foster, Saga of the Mighty Thor from Marvel. It is $44.99. That's the hardcover. There's a cheaper softcover version, too. That was just the only price I could find. This is written and drawn by Various. Here's your solicit. I guarantee you it's $39.99 in soft cover. 
goddess of thunder. When the Odin son is rendered unworthy of lifting Mjolnir, another claims the hammer. Her battles against frost giants, Malkith, and the Minotaur prove she's worthy of the name Thor. But this new hero is secretly Dr. Jane Foster. And each time she transforms, it worsens the cancer that's killing her. As the Odin son comes to terms with the loss of his hammer, the new Thor defines her independence when she battles Odin himself. But will she prevail when she's caught between rock on and shield meanwhile Melketh is waging war across the realms and jane must lead a powerful new team to oppose his terrible plans this collects thor 2014 1 through 8 mighty thor 2015 1 through 5 and 8 through 11 who knows what happened in 6 and 7 let's not talk about it and 13 and 14 Genera- my guess is that they were tie-ins to other events yeah generations unworthy thor and mighty thor and material from Thor Annual 2015. This is a big chunk of Jane Foster as Thor. It's not all of it, not but it is it. a bunch of it. Before you go to the movie, if you want to know what was Jane Foster like as Thor, here's your book. That's going to give you all the high points, all the big stories yeah. that she was in. This is a great way to catch up. By the way, if you're not excited for Thor Love and Thunder, you can f*** off. You can f*** straight off. Uh, yeah, don't yeah, download I, this show. Talk shit about us online. I don't care. You, it looks amazing. All right, <laughs> I have nothing uh, to rebut in that final <laughs> statement. You can find links to these picks in our show notes, and we always post our must read picks on our Twitter and Facebook every Wednesday so you can make an informed buying decision at your local comic shop. But let us know what you thought of our picks, Matt Bomb. What's a good place for them to do that? They can do that right there on our posts. Absolutely. When we post out our tweet, or when we tweet out or Facebook out our picks of the week, you can say, you guys are nuts. I read this book and it sucked. Joe Patrick, give me my money back. And then Joe Patrick will PayPal you that money back. That's not, no, that's not uh, accurate. That is not, not legally binding. No. Excelsior. That is it for teaching 663. Next week, we are back to reviewing new comics, and we're going to give you a sneak peek of our Patreon extra. Joe Patrick, what do we have lined up for these jerks that pay for our love? (laughs) Uh, We have a very serious Ask a Nerd question from our youngest and most loyal listener, as Hugo far as Duvernick. we know, youngest. There could be somebody else younger out there. Yeah, I mean, technically, yeah, I suppose. And technically, um, your parents probably shouldn't let you listen to this show. I Let's mean, we <laughs> we we've tried to clean up our act. I'm I, not judging you know, anybody's parenting. I'm just throwing that out there. Hugo wants to know some key differences between adamantium and vibranium, and we'll let him give us the question himself on the show. Yeah, we're going to touch on what does each do, properties, who uses each, stuff like that. Joe, I figure you cover one, I'll cover the other one, and we'll compare and contrast. (laughs) You do one, and I'll do one, and then also correct yours is what you mean by that. If you want to wrap about this week's episode, any comics you've read, or any of the weekly nerdy news that is dropping... Hit us up on our live call-in show, THN Cover to Cover. We do it every Saturday, starting at 11 Central Time, hosted on our Facebook page. And don't forget, maybe you're, you know, like, you don't know what you want to talk about. I like, I, I just, nothing, none of this is doing it for me. Maybe you had something like, I don't know, a question of the week to pique my interest or something like that. Joe, do we have anything like that? As a matter of fact, we do. Okay. And this week's question, oh yeah, once again, was submitted by Wooly Toots. Quote, 
I just reread Batman Year One and The Dark Knight Returns. Talking with others about them brought up their sequels, and consensus is that those stories were bad and disappointing. Lightning doesn't strike twice, they say. But what's an example where it did? Where the follow-up story pulled it off or was even better? End quote. So, in other words, what's the Godfather Part 2 of comics? This is harder than I thought. Like I started, It is harder. I started digging, and I was like, oh, this. It's tough. Mm, and then I looked, and I was like, nah, that sucked. I'm like, oh, what about that? Nah, that sucked. So. Yep. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. Uh, if you want to play along with Cover to Cover Live, you can join our Zoom by clicking on the link that we post in the Facebook Live video chat. And if you can't be there live, shoot an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the THN hotline, that number, 402-819-4894. And you could be internet famous. Please keep your question of the week suggestions coming. And remember to keep your recorded messages to two minutes or less so that we can share the air with the live listeners. If you're new to the show and you would rather the record just goes to work on your crotch with his Norn Queen enhanced wrecking bar, then listen to any more, I assure you. It's only because you just haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com. Now, THN, kids, it's a listener-supported podcast, just like NPR. And it would not be possible without the generosity of donors like our newest patron, Eric. He's like Sting. He only has one name. He's like, he only has one name. It's true. Yeah. And it's Eric with a K, just like Eric the Red. He's a scary guy, right? Yeah. If you like what Don't you mess hear, with him. If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. You've probably heard of it, where you'll hear all kinds of exclusive content, or you can just freak out and make a one-time donation via PayPal because you live a monastic lifestyle and you've sworn off materialistic things like Patreon extras and you just want to do good for the universe's sake. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to legendary creator Terry Moore. You might know him as the creator of Strangers in Paradise, but he's done so much more, and right now you can pick up the complete works of Mr. Moore at HumbleBundle.com for $35. It's a $717 value. Uh, and I'm pretty sure you can split up how that goes. You can give uh, some of it goes to charity. You can choose to yeah. give it all to more. And you don't like, have to buy it all. You can, you, can, you can pay less and just get some of it. But it's crazy. 35 yeah, bucks. It's for 35 bucks to get everything done. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Where do you, Mr. Moore? And if you've never checked out his stuff, there will not be a better or cheaper way to do so. Until next time, true relievers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just humble your bundle in front of all the cool kids. This is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off.